Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. We try to provide thoughtful discussion about the news of the day. We take a look at the current administration. I guess we also take a look at the past administration. Yeah. Since the current administration is largely focused on the past administration <laughs> and punishing it. And we address the existential threats to America, real and imagined. Today we'll catch up with the best, Byron York, columnist, the Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor, chief political columnist. We're getting lots of mails, right? Lots of emails? Lots of them, lots of them. Let's go to a couple. Don is our correspondent, our regular correspondent, and uh, our research associate. Right. Uh, He calls himself uh, czar of the Ministry of Job Loss. (laughs) <laughs> and economic destruction. But that's fine. Yeah. Go ahead. Let's see what he has to say. We gave him an assignment last week. Go yeah, ahead. he said he's speechless and humbled by his appointment as, as a czar of the Ministry of Job Loss and Economic Destruction. We asked him to track the number of job losses yes. created by mm-hmm. Joe Biden policy. Absolutely. He says he uh, will submit his reports uh, the day before the podcast. Um, he says, Take them uh, whenever you want to send them. Sure, exactly. He can send them whenever he'd like to. Uh, the Biden administration has done uh, a magnificent job of destroying the economy. In just two weeks, the price of gas has jumped 20 cents per gallon. Uh, the good news continues as of January Did you 8th. notice that? I haven't been driving lately. Have you noticed that? Uh, I haven't, actually. Okay. Uh, I'd like let, to know if other listeners have mm-hmm. noticed the price of gas. It says the good news continues. As of January 8th, 2021, employers have cut a total of 140,000 jobs. Uh, I think that that's according to an ABC News uh, article that he uh, cites here in the email. He says uh, this comes on the news that uh, that the Keystone Pipeline has been canceled with the news that 10,000 jobs have been lost. Economists have suggested that a total of $3 billion could be lost. Uh, the full effect of canceling all drilling and fracking on federal land has yet to be felt, but one only looks to the increase in the price of gas for hopeful signs. Additionally, the effects of the $15 minimum wage, uh, minimum pay are put into law by His Majesty have yet to be felt, but one can only look to Seattle, Washington for evidence of what is to come. The rise in minimum wage in Seattle has led to lost working hours for employees and the increase in the cost of everything well done. This is not done yet. I'm not sure it will be done, the minimum wage. It's part of this big package we'll talk to Byron about. Yeah, and then he f- ends by saying thanks again for the awesome role. Remember, not merely the validity of experience, but the very existence of external reality was tactically uh, denied by their philosophy. 1984. 1984. That's a quote from 1984. Okay. Uh, okay, good. Um, so, Don, uh, the only thing missing here is a running total. Uh, and I don't want you to guess about the jobs that will be lost. I want to actually talk about jobs mm-hmm. that have been lost. So, Don, I'm asking you a direct question. Can we stick to the ten or 11,000 because of the pipeline? Or do we add more? Don't pro- project. Mm-hmm. Only give us the jobs that are actually gone mm-hmm. now. I mean, uh, some will be lost because people are projecting their, you know, the price of oil and other things. Sure. And if, you, you know, if, if they're real and if people have actually lost their jobs, Mm-hmm. Because projections about the future, we want to know. Okay, go ahead. Let's go to Mark. Okay, Mark, a friend in McLean, Virginia. Uh, so yeah, he says yes, more please. In uh, reference to the Bennett Black Hanson uh, show that we did a couple weeks ago, I said I enjoy the single guest host shows uh, here uh, and those Mr. Hanson does on his own podcast. Yet I fear those monologues can be biopic. Uh, and so basically, he says that he likes the, you know the roundtable with uh, you guys. Uh, and uh, but he since this PS, he says very much enjoyed the pickup football games hosted by Mr. Bennett on the Mall back in the nineties. Had one on the Mall. Most of them were at Wilson High school okay and they were in the 80s mostly. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, some in the 90s yeah 
For sure. Nice. Okay, let's go to Jim. Uh, He says, I could listen to these three wise men talk all day, uh, but wouldn't consider the format change a net gain if it would mean less Brian Kennedy. Joe Farkas and Gordon Chang. We were just talking about Gordon Chang last week. We got to yeah. get him on. Uh, thank you for the excellent commentary. Your show consistently delivers. So again, he's talking about the the Bennett Black Hanson. Uh, yeah, but he said I I would not consider it a net gain even with those stars. Right. If we were to drop Brian Kennedy, Joel Farkas, or Gordon Chang, mm-hmm. we've got we to send that to Joel and Brian. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We should send They'd be to glad to hear that. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Uh, let's see. Our buddy Alfred says Claude. I just listened to the latest Bill Bennett podcast, and you asked if I liked the panel of three, and uh, should you do it again? Yes and yes. And then he says, P.S., my daughter Marlene is doing very well at the Air Force Academy in the top 10% of her class. I wonder if this is uh, the same uh, situation where uh, someone called in and asked about uh, military academies in the Air Force and said his daughter had uh, this, this. Alfred, email back and, and let us know if you're Clarify. the same. Yeah, yeah, because we had an email like this a while back. I think it was even in the radio days. Yeah. Let's see. This is from Gary. Yeah. Dr. Bennett and crew, I just listened to uh, just listened today to the podcast of the discussion with Victor Davis Hanson. And now, Lord this Dr. one is really funny. Yeah. Anybody who knows me will realize how funny this is. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Go read a little slower. This is funny. Okay. Really great podcast. First of all, uh, Victor Davis Hanson uh, is the most interesting, uh, wisest, and most learned person that I know anywhere. Oh, just a second. All right, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> I oftentimes scour the Internet to listen to his interviews. The classicists, uh, the, the Victor Davis Hanson show on uh, NRO, uh, the John Bachelor show, uh, Sebastian Gorka, etc. Anywhere I can hear Victor Davis Hanson. He's going along about Victor Davis Hanson. Yeah, I, I, I almost put it down at this point. I love Victor, but I almost put it down at this point because enough is enough, eh? And I was feeling my ego was feeling a little, okay. you know. All right. He continues. I know that I will learn something, uh, something and gain insight. So when you mentioned that you are considering making this podcast with Victor Davis Hanson and Mr. Black, a possible regular feature, I was saying amen and hallelujah. Please give it a try. At least Terry doesn't say you could step out of it yourself. Right. Yeah, no, you're right. In fact, he goes on and things get a little better for me here. Mm-hmm. He, he continues, says, by the way, I love hearing Dr. Bennett on Fox News whenever he is on. See, what he did is he reread his first couple of paragraphs. <laughs> and he actually. said, man, man, laying it on a little heavy on Victor Davis. I uh-huh. you know. He continues, he says, uh, he always shares his views with wisdom, reason, uh, and respectfully, I think just respect. Uh, and he isn't afraid uh, to disagree with the prevailing opinion when it's wrong. And I almost always agree. So I, I, maybe I'm second, third place. Mm-hmm. That's fine. I mean, it's funny though. Not funny. <laughs> yeah. After all that about Victor, that mm-hmm. he gets, gives me, gives me a, throws a little bouquet yeah. my way. Go but ahead. it does say he almost always agree, which means he yeah. doesn't always. Yeah. Agree. Doesn't always know, which is fine. We're not looking for agreement on everything, right? Uh, little bio, Purdue University engineer who did engineering for 25 years and is now teaching math at a community college. Especially love Dr. Bennett's history books about America. I even have the audio books and listen to them when I'm driving around. Anyway, big fan through the years, and I'm thankful to God for placing people like you in our public discourse. All right, as last two paragraphs made it into the show. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, just... Uh, some mail for you, Victor. Yeah, and we not, would forward it along to him. And no, 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 I'm just, kid, I'm just kidding. No, it's great. <laughs> and I share your view of Victor and Conrad. Mm-hmm. They're, they're great. And I also share the view of the other 
uh, email that it's not going to replace uh, Joel Farkas, Brian Kennedy, and Gordon Chang. Right. Yeah. The thought is not to stop this show. The thought is to do an additional program. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Oh, let's welcome Byron York to the show. Uh, He is at the Washington Examiner. He's a Fox News contributor. He's the chief political correspondent at the Examiner. His latest book is Obsession, Inside the Washington Establishment's Never-Ending War on Trump. Still true. Will it ever end? I don't know. So, Byron York, um, I read all the time. Uh, some of us worried, I guess some people worried, that after Trump there wouldn't be enough news. Holy smokes, there's enough news. Of course, we're not really post-Trump yet, are we? Well, not exactly. If you if you don't count the impeachment trial to come, <laughs> we're not entirely post-Trump. Um and even without but, the impeachment trial, I mean, you know, what, 47 executive orders? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's I mean, these are campaign promises, basically. You know, when when Joe Biden kills, you know, 11,000 jobs, it's a campaign promise. I mean, this is what the most activist part of the Democratic base wanted from him. Um, so um, there's been this kind of ratchet up effect with executive actions. Um, obviously, um, Obama did a fair amount of it after, after he lost the house in 2010 and then he lost the Senate in 2014. Um, and so he resorted to executive action for a lot of things, most notably DACA. Um, and then, you know, that created, I think a lot of resentments in Republicans and Trump did not start off with as many executive orders as Biden had, not nearly as many. He, he had one that was a, you know, big controversy, the whole travel ban thing. But, um, but he came to use executive power a lot, most notably probably for um, building a wall on the border. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, Democrats came in uh, and uh, were all just, just ready to undo everything Trump did. And if Trump did it by executive authority, it can be undone by executive authority. Yeah, you know, my first question, are we post-Trump? And the immediate answer is no, obviously not with the impeachment. But we're also not post-Trump with these executive orders. They all sort of have his name on it with a minus sign in front of it, right? I mean, they're all sort of anti-Trump. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's measures. right. I mean, so and he, Biden was lives. asked, you know, are you, are you like circumventing the making of law? And he said, I'm not making law. I'm just eliminating bad policy. So that's the idea that uh, uh, Biden is just kind of cleansing the system of all this bad Trump policy. Let me confess to error here. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. During the campaign, I watched these hysterical ads, semi-hysterical ads, you know, very intense, passionate ads by a variety of conservative groups saying, socialist America, socialist America, this guy will go to the left, left, left. I said, no, it'll be center left. He's still a moderate in a lot of things. Was I wrong? I think I was wrong. I think he's going left. Yeah, he certainly appears to be that way with the whole COVID relief thing, um, because you're, you know, you're sensing a lot of uh, frustration on the left. Uh, you know, uh, you know, ten Republicans come forward and say, uh, "Here's our plan. It's only six hundred billion dollars, and yours is one point nine trillion dollars." But let's compromise. And uh, a lot of activists on the left, Democrats, are very worried that uh, Biden's sort of old Senate, let's sit down and negotiate instinct might 
uh, kick in when, in fact, they really want to just crush uh, Republicans. Um, on the other hand, it's really hard to crush anybody when the Senate is divided 50-50. And so I think Biden is coming up against the inherent weakness in his position. Uh, it's not just that the House um, is a pretty narrow majority, uh, much narrower than they had expected. It's the 50-50 Senate. I mean, you know, and everybody says, well, Democrats are in control. And of course, the reason uh, Chuck Schumer is the majority leader is because it's a 50-50 Senate with a Democratic vice president to break a tie. But they, they don't get to that point a lot of the time. Things just don't happen. And, you know, if, if committees are divided equally, um, it's just very hard uh, to get you. a lot of stuff done. I was reading you and you said, you know, he's got to he's got to either get a couple of Republicans, one or two on major yeah. legislation or and he has to be sure he can't lose any Democrats like the Joe Manchin, who seems to me equivocates. But nevertheless, uh, Joe Manchin, maybe Kristen Cinema. So that's a real task. But can we come back to the House for a second? Because everybody uh -huh. breezes over the House. The majority yeah. in the House, here's my question, majority in the House is not that big, right? It's like 221 to 211 or something? Yeah, 222, I think. Okay, mm -hmm. and, and a couple of those people are taking government positions, Marsha Fudge. Yeah. So it's narrower, but are there enough moderate Democrats that some, you know, $1.9 trillion bill might not get through by their vote? Are there moderate and, Democrats you know, who won't vote for that? That's a, that's a great uh, point. And Pelosi, here again, you know, Schumer can't afford to lose a single Democrat. Pelosi can't lo afford to lose about four or five. And when you've only got 222, that's, I mean, that's, that's difficult. So that's an excellent point. I haven't really thought that through. Uh, it's usually easier to enforce voting discipline in the House. And um, they've been able, and Pelosi has been able to do that. So as I think about it, they'll probably be able to pass whatever Biden and Pelosi want. I think one other issue to think about is that um, um, obviously we talked all through the campaign about Biden being too old to be president. Uh, well, he's president now. And um, on the other hand, if he's not as forceful if he's not on top of it for 18 hours a day, um, you know, his willful, willful Democrats will, you know, try to steer him in one direction or another. And I, you know, I think he's just not operating, you know, completely with a, within a, from a position of strength. Um, clearly, you know, Democrats can win. But I'm not sure the most extreme Democratic position can win. All right. Well, that sort of answers my question. So maybe not so left. As uh, as as predicted in those Republican ads, but well, all the I mean, all the the dire stuff in the Republican ads, like like um, packing the court, yeah. and making the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico states, and uh, you know, Medicare for all, and that kind of stuff. That was all dependent on uh, eliminating the filibuster, and they have to have a majority to eliminate the filibuster. I mean the. The idea is you're supposed to have a lot more than a majority to change the rules, but they all, they've been using these, this nuclear maneuver to eat away at the filibuster over the last several years. First, with uh, executive appointments and all of the uh, all the court appointments short of the Supreme Court, and then with the Supreme Court, and now the last sort of bastion of the filibuster is the legislative filibuster, and they can't do anything unless they get rid of that, and it's just going to be very very hard to get rid of the filibuster. It will be hard. What is the bird rule uh, that Manchin keeps talking about? He keeps talking about his, his obeisance to bird and his traditions. This is from the uh, House website. Um, 
the Senate is prohibited from considering extraneous matter as part of a reconciliation bill, um, which means that if you have a budget reconciliation bill, it has to be somewhat related, I think, to revenue in the budget. All right, so you have to get rid of the filibuster. So you can't just throw anything in a budget bill and, and use reconciliation to avoid a Senate filibuster. So you couldn't have the, the court packing or the other things. But Correct. Will, will they get rid of the filibuster? You don't think so? No, I don't think so. Okay. I mean, no. Um, okay. they, they just don't have the the rule. They just don't have the, the votes. And, you know, I mean, the, the logic has always been um, that, you know, if you've been in the minority in the Senate, when you're in the majority, you don't want to kill the filibuster because you realize you'll be in the minority at some point. Um, clearly, there are a bunch of headstrong Democrats who just want to do it anyway and want to, pat, you know, turn America into a uh, progressive utopia until they lose the majority in the Senate and then the majority undoes everything they did by, you know, simple majority votes. Yeah, I was thinking, uh, <clears throat> I was saying the other day on TV that, um, you know, there are a lot more lawyers than um, mathematicians in the, in the, in the Congress. Some days I wish there were a lot more mathematicians who could count, you know, like money and so on and, and how much we're spending. Um, but also this, this whole vote, counting thing. If you were to just look ahead to 2022, back to the House, it would, it would look a little perilous for the Democrats, but doesn't look so perilous in the Senate, unless there's a... No, it looks, right? it looks, it looks better. Good. I mean, Yeah, so the, the, yeah, thing, but I mean, um, the thing you just said, I mean, go ahead. Kevin, I did, uh, I did a long interview with Kevin McCarthy shortly after the election, and remember there were predictions that Democrats were going to pick up between, what, 5 and 15 seats in the House. <clears throat> And not only did they not pick up any seats, they they lost a dozen. So it was a big deal. And um, Kevin McCarthy is a, is a real planner, very hard worker. And, you know, this was not an accident. He had been working very hard to make that happen. And so obviously he sees this opportunity um, next time around, which is one of the reasons I think you're seeing so many attacks on uh, House Republicans uh, right now. And Democrats are starting the campaign already, running Running ad, accusing all the House Republicans of being, you know, QAnon devotees and all of that stuff. The reason is they're in a very, very tight race starting right now. Yeah, and and I just to come back, we were talking about budget stuff. I keep thinking of that woman. What's her name? That memorable name, Abigail Spanberger, isn't that her name? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, she might not vote for one point nine trillion. She's in a swing district, and how many more are there like that? I don't know. Yeah, well, there were there were several of them who were um, on this famous conference call with Nancy Pelosi right after the election, which was basically, you know, you promised us that we would pick up seats, and we didn't. And, you know, I don't want to ever hear defund the police uh, again. Um, and clearly the kind of radical rhetoric that some Democrats were either embracing or just tolerating. You know, they weren't objecting to um, clearly hurt, you know, and when Republicans said – Democrats want to defund the police, and Democrats would say, "Oh no, no, no! We we just want to redirect some funding." <laughs> you know, that the public could kind of see through that. And certainly, Spanberger, who's from a moderate district in Virginia, and who escaped with her life this time, um, was really upset about that. I think there are at least half a dozen people like her on the Democrats. So I don't want to make too much out of this, but. I'm just seeing all the attention on the Senate. There should be a little more attention on the House. I think you, you make an excellent point. Um, but right now, in, yeah. uh, all the congressional reporters are obsessed with other stuff at the moment. Did you see that exchange 
George Stephanopoulos and, and Rand Paul. It's a, no, a, I didn't see it. Well, it's almost like a, um, a 1984 thing. Okay, first of all, Senator Paul, we got a lot to talk about. First, will you say here today that the election was not stolen? And Paul wouldn't say that. He said, "Well, you know, I, uh-huh. you know," and that he ended up using the whole segment on that. But it's almost as if to be credible, respectable, you have to say that. And if you say, "Boy, I, you know, there were irregularities," I'm not so sure. If you say, "I didn't realize right. the truth of what you were just saying," in 2017 or 2018, majority of Democrats, yeah, there's a, yeah, there, were, and a lot of Democrats didn't accept the legitimacy of Trump's election, and of course. A lot of Democrats in public office spent their days trying to undermine of course. Um, Trump's election. Yeah, but, but I mean, this is now a, a sort of thing with uh, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say, you have to you have to admit that uh, Biden was elected fair and square in a free and fair election. Blah blah blah. And if you say otherwise, and, you're, you're off the off the major um, social media. And a lot sites, of Republicans too. are doing exactly what Democrats did before. It said, "Look, he's the president. I accept him. He's the president." But that's not enough. You have to say, no, it was a a free and fair election, and he's totally legitimate. And look, there's a certain number of people who just don't believe that about the president at any time, probably. Uh, But certainly in the case of Trump and now Biden. And that's just the way it is. But Yeah, but the difference is you didn't get uh, struck off uh, social media sites if you were a Democrat saying that, as is happening to Republicans and conservatives now. That is true. Yeah, that is true. I think, I think it is true. Let's come back to if we could keep you just a couple more minutes. Uh, mm-hmm. it's such a wealth of information insight. Let's go back to the uh, executive orders and so on. I see, you know, Donald Trump sort of standing behind each of these virtually. Um, you know, the press secretary says, "Well, we're not." Would you would you go to her saying, "We're not making policy here. We're just undoing some really bad things that were done by this immoral yeah. administration." Word moral. Right. Moral and immorals come up a lot, but let's take yeah. a look. Let's take a look at these. Um, let's go Mexico. Two Mexico things. The Mexico City uh-huh. Accords—they're uh, gone by ex- executive fiat. So we'll right. pay pay for abortions in foreign countries. Is that right? Yes. Uh, now, I, if you can probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the Mexico City policy is something that just has ping ponged back and forth. I agree. That's uh, right. Whether there's a Republican or a I Democratic agree. president, I agree. So no, it's, I it's, believe. Trump reinstated it after Obama, and Obama ended it after Bush, and Bush reinstated it after Clinton. No, no, I, that's right. No, it's been very regular, or you know, back and forth. Uh, right. It doesn't mean it isn't serious and consequential to people who care deeply about. Yeah, this. yeah. But but you're right. There's been that pattern. But let's do another thing in Mexico. How about this thing now, where Mexico will not be asked uh, or demanded of them that they re- uh, re- retain people in Mexico for crossing the yep. border? This is a huge thing, is it not? No, it's a huge thing. And and Trump really, you know, uh, Trump uh, I think made some enormous errors um, as concerns the border wall. He basically didn't do much of anything on it in his. Uh, first half of his term, when he had control of the House, Republicans had the House and the Senate. Uh, and basically, I believe that Paul Ryan and the leadership of the House basically talked him out of doing it. And uh, let's do taxes. It just happens to be Paul Ryan's interest. Let's, let's do that first. And then we can do a wall later. And of course, then Trump lost the House. And <laughs> there's no way in the world the House is going to pass uh, enough money for a wall. So... Um, he had, uh, you know, he had completely messed up on that. But he came up with um, 
a series of policies that were really helpful in slowing the number of um, illegal crossers into the United States, and one of which was there was a uh, certainly in the late Obama years, um, you had people crossing illegally in, into the United States, and they were not at all hoping to escape detection. They would just literally cross the border illegally and look for a border person they could surrender to um, because they knew they would be given a piece of paper with a court date, uh, that which could be years in the future, and then they'd be allowed to stay in the country. So they were here. So there was a huge incentive to do that, and uh, Trump removed that incentive with what's called the wait in Mexico policy, which is he, he got an agreement from Mexico uh, in which people who were crossing illegally into the United States from Mexico, uh, they got the court date, they got into the system, but they had to wait in Mexico while their case was came up for adjudication in the United States. And um, Biden is just going to throw that out the window. Uh, as a matter of fact, he already has. But that was one of the ways in which Trump dealt with illegal crossings um, short of building the wall. Now, the wall is a physical thing, and Biden's not going to take down what Trump built. Um, but with a policy, boom, you can get rid of it immediately. Any additional building, right? What's that? Any additional building you get rid of. Oh, well, yeah, wow. with the um, with, with the wall. I mean, he it stopped at noon on on inauguration day. But they're not going to take down um, the wall. But but now now they're no, facing a problem. But now they're facing a problem because they got all these people who think they're coming in. But I, saw, I think I heard Jen Psaki, the press secretary, say, "No, no, you can't come in. Uh, not yet. Yeah, we're working it out." They well, Biden expressed concerns. There were there were reports during the campaign. That and you know Biden also promised, and he's he's come come through on this too, a 100-day moratorium on uh, deportations. I mean, during the campaign, he said nobody, and I mean nobody is going to be deported in the first hundred days. I mean, what does that say? You know? Yeah, sure. And now he's added the fine print to it, which is there's a couple of categories for national security purposes that can be deported, and nobody who arrived after November 1st of last year, basically election day. Um, is immune from deportation, meaning you can't just show up right now and and say, hey, you can't deport me. But uh, it created a huge incentive. So there were a lot of stories about uh, unexpected border surge, which you know bothered uh, Biden. So he hasn't completely dismantled the Trump immigration and border policy. I think they got a political problem there too, because if you get this huge surge, I mean, I you know I I've heard the standard differences here between Republicans and Democrats, but there is a degree of excitation and uh, alarm in the voices of these border officials from the last administration saying, this is really going to be insane uh, if they open the floodgates. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll just have to, we'll just have to see how, how many uh, come in and what kind of stress they put on the system. I mean, it could be that, uh, you know, six months later, we'll read a story finding that X number of hundred thousand or million had come in, uh, or it could become, you know, a bit of a crisis right now. It's, it's, it's not clear, but immigration is, is a big deal. Remember Biden said when he comes into office, he says, we have four simultaneous crises that we have to handle. One is COVID and second is the COVID related economic downturn. The other is climate. And the fourth is the, uh, racial equity crisis. Okay. So, those are the four crises he's going to work on. There'd be some disagreement whether they're all four really big crises or equal crises. But what was interesting was if the first stuff he 
took action on was immigration. Uh, he yeah. did more executive uh, actions in his first few days on immigration than he did on COVID or the economy or climate or racial equity. He did more. And the first bill that he sent to Congress, the first, was an immigration reform measure. So that's a huge thing with the Democratic base. He had a lot of debts to pay, and he's, he's paying them. I remember having a conversation back in the radio show days, Byron, where you generously appeared a lot with Mark Krikorian, you know Mark, and uh-huh. I said, how powerful is this? He said, oh, the the, the uh, immigration lobby is the most powerful thing in the Democrat Party. He said, stronger than the teachers' unions, which I'll spare you my lecture on that. You've maybe <laughs> heard it. God knows everybody's – I have a choir now singing what I've been singing for 40 years about the teachers' unions. Uh, stronger than the teachers' unions, stronger than um, – Big feminism, stronger than um, Sierra Club, uh, stronger than uh, you know, virtually anything, and, and even the racial equity thing, and that's why it's uh, that's why it was front and center. It's a great observation you're making. Here were all these promises, and yet this is the one that gets priority. Quite amazing. Yeah, yeah. Look, it is. They're they're very very strong, and the, and the change came. If you remember, there was a, there was an older Democratic Party that made its way up until about the election of Obama, um, in which um, a lot of Democrats were heavily pro-union, and the unions were against uh, loose immigration enforcement. Yeah, jobs. And yeah. liberal immigration, because they believed that um, allowing in too many uh, low-skilled uh, workers from Mexico and other countries would you know bring down the wages of right. uh, working Americans? Remember the Congressional Black and Caucus, right? Was strongly against it, right? Exactly. Yeah, uh, right. that was a big that was a big deal, and even in the failed immigration effort of 2006 and 2007, um, they were a strong uh, voice. And Bernie Sanders was one of them, actually. And Sanders is still not really um, completely liberal on immigration. Uh, but by the time that the Gang of Eight had happened, which was 2013, which was you know the last really big comprehensive immigration reform effort, uh, the unions were on board. Um, first of all, the types of unions uh, dominating the Democratic coalition had changed. It was more service uh, service unions and uh, government employee unions, fewer. Uh, industrial unions because fewer less industry, you know. Um, so the the unions had had gotten on board with more immigration, and that's what made that's what made the Gang of Eight possible. And remember, the Gang of Eight passed the Senate with sixty eight votes, not just Democrats, yeah, yeah, a lot yeah, of Republicans yeah, yeah, voted yeah. for it. Um, and I think what you could see now with a Biden effort for immigration reform is that you could see some people who were literally in the Gang of Eight. I'm thinking of Lindsey Graham here. Republicans who could just kind of snap back <laughs> to their position, <laughs> you know, on a pre-Trump position on immigration. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not outside the realm of possibility for Biden to actually, you know, pass something on that. Two last things, and, and, we'll, and we'll let you go. I know you got a lot to do. But one is um, we have a listener who is writing us weekly, giving us the totals on jobs lost since Biden came in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we obviously know about the pipeline. But there's yeah. a lot of speculation. Is, is it grounded solidly that this is, uh, you know, the, the saga is more to come, more job losses to come? Maybe they'll get rid of fracking. But when you eliminate uh, drilling on federal lands and uh, 
other things. Uh, he reports gas is up at the at the tank. I haven't noticed that, but but uh, is this going to be a major major thing? It's not just an isolated case here, the the pipeline. Well, you'd think it'd be a major thing if Republicans can uh, can make it. So, and the federal lands thing is going to cost tens of thousands of jobs, well, yeah. in addition to the um, yeah. to the pipeline thing. And and the the Democratic answer, of course, is that oh well, those jobs they're going to be replaced by all these great new green jobs, making solar panels and things like that. Which John Kerry even got a bit of ridicule for that when he said that the other day. Um, it was kind of like the liberal. Biden administration version of learn to code, and uh, but there's there's no doubt that um, there's going to be a, a lot of jobs lost, and there's a lot of doubt about being able to produce very many green jobs. This is exactly what Barack Obama promised in 2008 and 2009, and if you remember, uh, Van Jones, who most people would know from being on CNN was actually Obama's green jobs czar. Yeah. He had kind of sold this idea that you could just create millions and millions of new jobs uh, and, and, and satisfy the, um, uh, the, uh, the economic, excuse me, the environmental agenda at the same time. You could put them together. And, you know, it, it ended up in Solyndra and... Um, and these are union workers, success. right? These are union workers who are going to lose yeah. their jobs. Yeah, So... Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens there. But I think yeah. green jobs is going to turn into just the same thing it's always turned into, which is there'll be some industries that are heavily subsidized by the government. And, you know, the government can subsidize something to keep it afloat. Right. But, you know, the market will change, you know, when yeah. the market changes. Um, yeah, I heard a rumor uh, that it's not just, um, you know, the pipe fitters and the and – the, uh, you know, the roughnecks and others on this who will lose their jobs. I also heard it was conservative columnists and political writers who need to start <laughs> studying solar. So, Yeah, learning uh, learning to code. Yeah, um, well, the you code. know, the, obviously the greenest job of all would be to stress natural gas production. Yeah. I mean, and that we're, is... We're great you know, at the that. The switch to natural gas is what has caused U.S. emissions to go way, way down. the best in the world? Like the best in the yeah. world? I mean, yeah. What's, and, the compla- what's the complaint here, you know? Because, because this is an ideological thing. It's yeah. not a practical yeah, thing. It's, not about, it's an yeah. ideological. It's amazing. So, if, you know, if you, could, if you could use natural gas to, to reduce the emissions in all sorts of other countries, and, and Kerry did admit the other day that, you know, the 85 to 90 percent of the problem is outside the United States. And if the United States got to zero emissions, um, there'd still be a huge problem worldwide. Yeah. But if you, I mean, if you use natural gas to sort of fix that problem in so many other continents, uh, that would be a tremendously good thing. But it's just, it's, it's just unacceptable ideologically right. to rely on a fossil fuel, even though it is plentiful as it can be. I mean, we've just discovered you know, tons and tons and tons of natural gas. And so while we all work on this this wonderful, renewable utopia that's somewhere off in the future, you could really in, uh, improve the environment or at least reduce emissions by switching to natural gas. Yeah, no, it's great, great point, great point. All right, let's go, if not the 800-pound uh, gorilla in the room. I love the phrase, the brooding omnipresence. You remember that from Justice Holmes' opinion. 
and brooding, brooding the, omnipresence, the brooding omnipresence of the former president. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been at a whack-a-mole table, but if there were 47 little whack-a-moles with a hammer behind each one of these policy, quote, policy questions, I see the visage of Donald Trump. You know, if Trump did it, we're opposed to it. And, yep. you know, a lot of these priorities are based on how strongly he felt about these things. I just can't resist saying that. And, you know, and so let's let's talk about Donald Trump. So they're, they impeached him a second time. They're not going to convict him. Right? No, I don't think they're going to convict him. I mean, the, you know, there's, the, there's a couple of things here. There's Make it, there's a th- the, make it three the, things. Uh, the, who's the trial good for? I saw Andy McCarthy wrote, this actually turns out to be good for Trump because he'll be exonerated, he won't be convicted, and then he, you know, he has life, he'll take this as a charge. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't think it's really good for anybody. Yeah. Um, good I don't for think us. it's really great for yeah. Capitol Hill Democrats or Republicans or Trump himself. I just, I just don't think it's – and to me, there are two issues. One is the constitutional issue, and two is the, uh, just the substance issue. And, um, you know, Democrats are going to make this argument. They're going to use a lot of video at the trial. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's very, very dramatic video of the, of the Capitol riot. Right. And they're basically going to show every bad thing that was done at the Capitol riot, and there was a lot of it, um, and say that Donald Trump is, quote, singularly responsible for it. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure how they are going to define singularly. Um, but, but I think a lot of Republicans are going to say, "Look, even if Trump is shares responsibility for this, I mean, people are responsible for their own actions. Yeah. I mean, if you yeah. if you took a uh, an officer's shield and you used it to crash through a window, I mean, you did that. Yes, you're a person. Yes, and, and these people are being prosecuted. Yes. By the way, yes, yes. So the yes. government must believe they have some agency here yeah. that yeah. they mm-hmm. that they you know are responsible for their actions. So anyway, there's going to be a debate about that and the nature of incitement. Uh, and then there's the constitutional thing, and I've I've looked into it quite a bit. I'm not a lawyer, not a constitutional scholar, but I think it's really dubious constitutionally to have a trial for a former president. Um, and, you know, and you, you hear all of these appeals to authority saying that, well, most experts believe that it's entirely permissible. Well, experts are actually pretty divided about it. And um, I think you can make uh, an excellent case that it is constitutionally impermissible to do this. So there'll be that debate, too. And we know the Republicans have already voted on that issue, and 45 of them said they thought it was um, – not permissible under the Constitution to try a former president. You know, the uh, when you were talking about the ugliness of the uh, the attack and the fearsomeness of it, and obviously people yep. died. At the same time, there was just, just some ridiculous stuff. You know, the guy with the Viking horns. And yeah. I, I was thinking of a phrase, I think it's Edmund Burke, about the French Revolution. A chaos of levity and ferocity, you know? And, <laughs> It's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, that kind of fits. You had, you had yeah, a bunch of jokers yeah. I there. Would, um, I would recommend to you, if you haven't watched it, and anybody listening, um, the New Yorker published a video um, of the attack, and it's about, I think, 12 minutes long. And the first couple of minutes are the stuff you've seen of people crashing into the, uh, breaking into the Capitol from the outside. And the last two minutes are kind of like that. But inside, there's about a five-minute set piece of a group of the protesters in the well of the Senate. I mean, they're in the Senate chamber. 
Um, and they're kind of milling around. They don't quite know what to do. They're, they're rifling through Ted Cruz's desk. They're rifling through other desks, hoping that they can find some document that will, I don't know, prove to them that the election was stolen or whatever yeah, they were looking yeah, for. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's yeah. an extraordinary moment. I mean, it really, really is. Um, and it gives you, it's, 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 uh, Mrs. York watched it and called it tragicomic. I mean, it okay. is, and it really is. Levity and ferocity. Um, yeah, okay. Which is what you were getting at, exactly. Yeah, not me, Burke. Um, yeah. So people should watch it, and it, and it will give them a little better idea of, of what some of these people at least were, were doing when they were there. I, you can comment on this or not. I, I, you know, I was pretty close to Donald Trump. Liked him, defended him a lot. Thought his policies, for the most part, were great. Um, thought he lost the election because of his style, frankly. Um, but um, I don't think he'll be the candidate in uh, 2024. I just don't think that's Oh, I don't happen. think there's any way in the world. Yeah. Look, I think that... Um, Tell me why. Trump, well, first of all, he, I mean, he accomplished a lot of uh, really good things. I think he's probably the most effective, certainly the most effective Republican president since Reagan. Uh, accomplished a whole lot. Yeah. Uh, the last being one of the biggest, which is the uh, coronavirus vaccines. Um, but I think you'd also say that after November 3rd, after the election, um, it, it, everything he did yeah. was just disastrously wrong. I mean, disastrously wrong. Um, I go back and look at what I was writing and saying about it. Uh, and then the first week, I think I wrote something on the maybe the 12th, Ninth of the twelfth of November, saying, "Look, it, it's over, except for the lawsuits, but it's over." But I, I thought and said that Trump was within his rights to go to court sure. and challenge some of these results, sure. which he did do. Sure. And he lost. Um, so, but but it's not you know attacking democracy to go to court and challenge a result. So uh, my sense was that he had a few weeks to do that, and if he could come up with something, fine. And if he couldn't come up with something, um, December 14th, which was the day that the Electoral College voted, was the day to stop. I mean, all the states had certified their elections. Uh, on December 11th, the Supreme Court declined to hear the Texas case. Yeah, and on December the 14th, uh, the Electoral College voted, and uh, three, well, was it 306 to 232, I think. Um, for Biden. So it was over. I mean, that was it. Time to quit. Um, and Trump didn't do it. And things just got more and more disastrous after, after that. Uh, he started listening, uh, to people like Sidney Powell and others who told him that he wanted, what he wanted to hear. And, um, and he began, you know, he, he just moved into disastrous territory. And after December the 14th, you started hearing Republicans or, or Trump say that the real date that wasn't December 14th. It was January 6th. That is when Congress meets to uh, to um, certify the results of the Electoral College. And then Trump advertises this rally, says it's going to be wild, and then we all know what happened. So um, it, it was just a, a conflagration uh, of his own presidency after November 3rd. Um, by not knowing when to stop, that uh, he had exhausted all of his options by December the 14th. And if he had accepted the result at that point and devoted the rest of his presidency to um, getting the coronavirus 
into American arms and to highlighting all the things that he had done as president. Yeah, sure. It would be a remarkably different story. Yeah. Um, but he made you know disastrously bad choices. I don't disagree with your account, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know if he'll join this me, this Japanese soldier in the cave here, um, saying I, I still think the election was stolen, and I do. <laughs> I, I understand, you know, things being over and all that, but um, too many. I, I've looked into it hard. I know you have, but too many anomalies. Too many things. Too many things wrong. What did, what did Galileo say after his trial? They nailed him and stuff, and he said okay, and then he mumbled. Still, it moves, you know, <laughs> the earth, it's, it moves. Anyway, I, uh, and, and I still believe that. And, and the importance of that may not be relevant in terms of the Biden presidency, he's the president, but we have elections coming up. And if things that happened, uh, you know, like no addresses required and no verification required that happened in the last election, you know, become permanent, um, we're going to have more of these uh, um, yeah, stole elections, or at least questionable. No, and I think, uh, look, I, I think we there's two things. I think we, uh, uh, you'll see Democrats uh, wanting to make a lot of the temporary changes to mail-in balloting to make those permanent. Uh, changes that were made to the electoral system as a result of coronavirus, them wanting to make those permanent because they sense that they have an advantage in that. Uh, I think it's a bad idea. So you have that. And then, you know, as far as the election itself, I mean, why doesn't some conservative billionaire, you must know some, start, you know, an institute for the study of the 2020 election? I mean, they can go through all of these, yeah. all of these records. You know, the uh, the envelopes in Georgia, um, I think they have to keep those for 22 months, I believe. Yeah. They're there. I mean, they're all stacked up somewhere in a, in a warehouse, boxed up. Um, this kind of stuff can be looked at. Elections uh, produce a lot of data. And if there's serious questions about the results, why not study it? It could be done. It can be done privately. Yeah. Okay. Byron, thank you. Uh, fabulous discussion. Just great. We enjoyed it, Bill. Always appreciate your willingness. That does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. Like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's Podcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. Catch up next week, Claude, won't we? Yes, sir. Yes, sir.